and welcome to Doc to Me. My name is Heather. And I'm Kathleen. And this week we thought we would take a little bit of a break and talk about our favorite Forensic Files episode. What if I'd switched it up and said Unsolved Mysteries? <gasps> Actually, you know what? I could do like an entire TED Talk on like any episode of Unsolved Mysteries, so we would be good. I'd be like, bam, got you. <laughs> The random one where the bunk bed caught on fire for no reason. Dude, that one scared the shit out of me. <laughs> Wild. So I had no idea that for the first four seasons, the show was called Medical Detectives. Do you know what? Honestly, that name sounds familiar to me, but I did not know that it was the same show, so... I heard that. I was like, I do not remember that. Dude, I just remember, like, Forensic Files was the reason why I really wanted to be, like some kind of forensic scientist. Did I do that? No, I did not. No. I instead I got knocked up and got married <laughs> and, you know, all that. But it was always my dream. <laughs> so Forensic Files is an American documentary television program that reveals how forensic science is used to solve violent crimes, mysterious accidents, and outbreaks of illness, which those were my favorites. Oh, yeah. The show was originally broadcast on TLC, narrated by Peter Thomas and produced by MedStar Television, distributed by FilmRise in association with True TV Original Productions. It broadcast 406 episodes from its debut on TLC on April 23, 1996 until its final episode on June 17, 2011. There were a couple specials, but it was like, JFK, and I was like, no. Nobody cares. <laughs> Not every case is a crime. In some cases, the investigation reveals that the suspects are innocent and that a death was an accident or suicide, which is kind of what added to the excitement of the show. Yeah. Because you could watch it, it might not. Did they? Yeah. The show's narrator, Peter Thomas, died on April 30th, 2016, five years after the program went out of production. I forgot who this guy was. Somebody involved with the show stated that Peter Thomas can't be replaced. Which meant, you know, they're not going to revive the show ever again. Despite saying that, the program was revived for an additional season in February 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Five years. (laughs) Bill Camp was chosen to succeed Thomas as the show's narrator. So, do you want to go first? You want me to go? I feel like I should go first because yours is going to be better. (laughs) Not necessarily. (laughs) So, but I also like. Do we need to like, flip a coin or rock, paper? I don't care. Okay. If you don't want to go first, I will go first. Okay, I will go first. Okay, I can sit back. Okay, so I chose the case on Oba Chandler, which was um, season 14, I think episode 11, titled Waterlogged, which is <laughs> pretty appropriate. Um, this episode starts out in 1989 in Tampa, Florida. And God, they Tampa in the eighties. <laughs> yeah, I just picture like big, big hair and all the like stereotypical eighties, you know. <laughs> and it's like the late eighties too, so it's oh, like God. Oof, creeping up on that nineties stuff. So, three women's bodies are found in Tampa Bay, and they are bound with yellow rope. They are naked from the waist down. And they are tied to 30-pound cinder blocks. So each woman is tied to a cinder block. 
they do not know who these women are. They have no identification on them, and they are very decomposed for the situation. Um, they estimate they've been in the water for about four days. Ugh. Yeah, which is... So waterlogged? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> waterlogged. Um, they speculate, you know, based because the water was hot in Florida, they decomposed faster, and they believe that is the reason why the body exploded to the surface in the cinder block. Um, the detective speculates that if the water may have been colder, who knows, maybe one cinder block might have worked. And I feel like that's something that, like, the body farm would have, like, tested out the theory on, like... Well, I could also see, like, yeah, if the water's warmer, it might decompose faster, so then the air is escaping, and... Right, which is what they kind of, they were like, oh, you know, if they had done this in, like, a colder area, they might have gotten away with it, kind of thing. Which always makes me think of, like, the Dexter Morgan, like, old, you know, dumping bodies yeah. in the ocean. But anyways, so, the media picks it up, and, you know, they're like, three women found in the water, no idea who they are, and a motel calls them up, I think it was like a day's end. And they report that they had three women, a mother and her two daughters. Now I remember the story. Yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big one. So they report that they had a mother and her two daughters check in, and they had not seen them in several days. I think it was like something like five days at that point. Um and when they went to their room, they noticed that all of their luggage was still there. The beds had not been swept in. The towels had not been used. It just, the room hadn't been used. Um, and also they left behind their shit, which is not yeah. something most people do. So um, it turns out the room belongs to 36-year-old Joan Rogers and her two daughters, 17-year-old Michelle and... 14-year-old Christy, and they are from Ohio, and they live on a dairy farm, which is very important to the case because they had apparently gone on a girl's trip, and they left the husband, who I believe was also 36, Hal Rogers, um, home to take care of the dairy farm. They actually had never gone on a vacation before or even really left the state because running a dairy farm is, you know, really yeah. time consuming and it was their entire lives. And so, you know, the husband stayed behind. He was like, you know, take the girls, like have fun. They went to Florida. I believe they actually went to like Orlando and they were just kind of driving around. They would like sightsee and then you know, check into a hotel and then sightsee some more and then go to another hotel. And so they were just traveling around in Florida. Um, and they were actually on their way back and they got lost. And so they were staying, I believe, another day in Tampa um, on their way back. So they reached out to the husband in Ohio and they asked for dental records. Now he, they were supposed to be back I believe he waited three days past their their like supposed return date to even report them missing, which you know immediately the detectives thought that was suspicious because he waited 
you know, his whole thought was that, you know, they may have decided to stay a little bit longer. They were having fun. Um, they felt that he wasn't very emotional or connected, which... A dairy farmer? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, was, he was a dairy farmer, and, you know, he was focused on keeping shit running, which, yeah. like, I kind of understand. Like, I would be a shit show. I really would. I would, But this like, is down. a hard-ass stoic farmer. Yeah. He's been doing this, you know, they got married straight out of high school. He's been doing this, like, his whole life, basically, running this dairy farm, and... You know, you miss out on, like, a day of work, and everything goes to shit, and you yeah. don't fucking pay your bills, you know? So it's it's a big deal. Um, so they get dental records from him, they compare them, it turns out that it is, in fact, his wife and two daughters. They're immediately suspicious of a husband, and they decide to check out, see if he has an alibi, which, of course, he does. Conveniently for him, he doesn't really like to cook or know how just maybe imagine them interviewing all the cows <laughs> <laughs> excuse, excuse me uh do you remember being milked on this day uh yeah so it turns out he's not too domestic himself so he ate breakfast and dinner every day in town i mean there were a lot of witnesses from the town because it's like a small little like dairy area so, like, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, we saw we saw Hal, like, he had dinner. So, on the day that they went missing after checking into the hotel, you know, he had had breakfast out, was seen. He had had dinner out, was seen. So, there's no way he made it to Florida from Ohio, you know, to murder his wife and daughters. Um, so, they tracked down the car and find... The car is actually, I want to say they said 25 miles from... Is it their car or car they rented? It was their car. It had Ohio okay. plates. So they actually, they drove to Florida and, and were driving around. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it was their car. They tracked it down and it was actually it was 25 miles from the bodies where they were spotted in the water. And then one mile from their hotel, the days in that they were staying in. Okay. Um, so they search the car and inside they find two pieces of paper. There is a days in notepad that has the directions to the boat launch written and then a brief like blue slash WHT, which obviously is blue with white. A little note, they compare, you know, handwriting samples and they identify that it's the mother's handwriting and then there's another piece of paper that is a brochure for the days in and which i i didn't know that days in was <laughs> i didn't know days in was so fancy that they have like writing notepads and like brochures and stuff but apparently they are in the 80s um so the brochure itself has directions to the days in written on it and i believe it was something like courtney turn something so that i had like a t in it which is important um and they compared it to the mothers and both daughters and it was not any of their handwriting so they immediately are like oh interesting. a cow learned how to write how it was the dad <laughs> so they you know, they, they're like, okay, this is suspicious, like, you know, clearly they met someone, and whoever they met, like, 
you know, gave them directions to their hotel, but also they have directions to, like, a boat launch, which is very weird because obviously yeah. they came from Ohio and they don't have a boat. Um, so they immediately start looking for boats in the area that are blue and white. Oh, <laughs> which God. Is, which is basically, like, all the boats. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, they're showing, like, the clips and, like, forensic files, and it's, like, just an ocean of blue well, and white Because I can just imagine, because there's so many lakes, like, around us, how many boats we see, and, yeah, it's yeah. always, like, blue, white. Blue and <laughs> blue, white, yeah. very popular shade for boats. So they find out that there is a suspicious guy who is running moonlit boob... boob. <laughs> Moonlit boot cruises. <laughs> he is doing moonlit boat cruises for people. He's not licensed. He doesn't have, like, it's not a company. It's just some guy in a boat, which is pretty sus. As yeah, but he, it is Florida in the 80s. <laughs> exactly. You know, as, as a 34-year-old in, you know, 2021, I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> but, you know, people from, you know, Ohio in 1989 from, you know, Ohio now. Yeah, <laughs> Ohio now, yes. So it turns out this guy, Jason Wilcox, has a blue and white boat. He also has a criminal record for, you know, some some shady shit. And he also lives like five miles away from the boat dock. So, That's shocking. He seems like he'd live on the boat. I, like, it's not a boathouse, but he's made it I <laughs> a agree. boat home. <laughs> home. It's, not, it's not a boat Boathouse. It's a it's boat, a boat home. home. Um, so then they find out that there is actually a 24-year-old female Canadian who is visiting Florida. God, who, Canadians love Florida. That's so weird. Who decided as a tourist to go on a you know, sunlit boat cruise. And she says that while on the water, the man forces her to have sex with him. And, you know, she obviously fights back. She doesn't, she's, you know, he's, he's trying to get her to just like comply and just have the sex. Did with. he really pull a Dennis? Exactly. <laughs> Implication. Once you're out on the water, there's that implication. implication. I'm not hurting these women. It's the implication. implication. Oh my god. He takes her on a boat alone and tries to convince her to have sex with him as like some kind of like trying to force it to be consensual. Um (laughs) I I don't understand so he also tells her that there are sharks in the water, which like what the fuck, man? <laughs> so obviously she's not gonna jump overboard. She's out in the middle of the water with him. She's pleading. She's like, I'm a virgin, and like apparently that seemed to like excite him, which is gross. Ugh. Like, ew. Um, he basically tells her that sex is not worth dying over, and eventually rapes her. Um, he waits a while. She says that he throws up over the side of the boat which the detective was unsure if that was because he was, like, so excited over what he had done that he was, like, sick because of all the adrenaline, I guess, 
or like maybe he was disgusted by what he had done and thrown up i don't know and the detective doesn't either (laughs) um so he eventually waits for nightfall he drives the boat close to the shore and allows her to swim to shore to safety yes he forces her to swim to shore she um basically she went home and showered and or went to the hotel and showered before she you know even talked to the cops about the situation um so obviously there was no dna um and there also was not any dna on joan and the two girls they assumed that there had been sexual assault because of the fact that they were nude from the waist down um but dna really wouldn't have been that big of a you said 89 right yeah, it was 89. Yeah. So it wouldn't have, you know, they were they were talking about how it was like a huge be like, disappointment that there was no DNA, but like, I mean, what were they going to know? The blood type of the person? Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't. The secretor, it wasn't like non-secretor a, thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It wasn't, I don't think it was like a deal breaker. No. Like, they made it out to be more disappointing than it really would have been. Yeah. The overall, like, yeah, it made sense. Like, they were floating in the water for a long time. There wouldn't have been any DNA. There probably wouldn't have been any DNA that was like anyway useful if she had not showered before going to the police. It wasn't, you know. So basically, they decide okay, like it's pretty clear that like someone is taking women on boat rides and doing horrible things. So they show pictures of this Jason Wilcox guy, and she's like, "That's not the one." You know, he he's not the guy that did it. Um, and he also apparently had some alibis that lined up. So he's not the guy. And I feel like I'm just, like, all over the place with this. It's but. fine. <laughs> so, yeah. So they go ahead and have her, you know, meet with a forensic artist or whatever. And they come up with, like, a comp- uh, composite sketch of the suspect who did, in fact, take her on the boat and rape her. And it kind of just, like... Like, they got so many leads, they said, that, like, it was really hard to weed through all of them, and it kind of just went nowhere. It fizzled. Three years go by. They have not solved this. And they decide to take their only real lead that they have, which is the little Days End pamphlet with the directions to the Days End written on it in what is obviously not the wife or daughter's handwriting. And... They make billboards. They put five billboards up around the area in Tampa. And, you know, the handwriting is pretty significant. They said especially because there was a capital T in the middle of the word. And it was always a capital T. There were four different Ys. And each one was written different. Slightly different, but also still very similar. So, yeah, they're like, we don't know what else to do smack up some billboards and a woman happens to be driving by see one of the billboards and say holy crap that handwriting looks familiar turns out it looks like the handwriting of a contractor that worked for her oh god yeah <laughs> that's scary and i'm just kind of shocked that the cops even spent the money to put a not only a billboard but, but five. five yeah i was amazed five billboards with like I think it was a ten thousand dollar reward and bam this lady just calls seems like up a and lot she of says, effort 
She goes home, she rifles through, she pulls out the receipt from the contractor and looks at that compared to the billboard, and it's pretty freaking, like, even just the naked eye, it's a damn match. So, what, was it like a home contractor? Yeah, she had had some work done. Oh, that is scary. And she even talks about how he didn't really look her in the eye, he was kind of weird, she felt he was really shifty, which is not something you look for in a home contractor, like, at all. I mean, it sounds like me, but (laughs) I'm not in other people's homes. Exactly. I don't also try to, like, be personable. Yeah. (laughs) So, so yeah, she basically, she goes to the cop, she turns out it's, uh, I believe he's 43, his name was Oba Chandler, he was married and had eight children from seven different women, which I was like, holy shit, like, that's a lot of commitment. He also well, had... I guess lack of commitment, that's why there's so many different mothers. Yeah, a lot. but I mean, commitment to having, like, eight kids, like, that's a lot of, like, parenting. Like, just shit. snippet something. Yeah, like, I've only got two, and, like, that's a lot of work. Like, eight just seems so troublesome. Yeah, but I don't think he's in their lives a lot. That's, that's um, so he also has a criminal record with two previous sexual assaults, which immediately is like a huge red flag. And he lives within one mile of the boat ramp. Ding, ding, ding. So they compared his handwriting with the, you know, forensic specialist, the handwriting analysis. And, you know, they're like, this matches. But it's not really enough to, like, convict him. Just like, yeah, hey, we've got, like, his handwriting on a, on a pamphlet. So they bring in the first victim who escaped with her life, just barely, and they show photos, like a little photo lineup, a six pack, if you will. A six pack? A six pack, if you will. Um, And she immediately, you know, reacts to his picture and says, this is the guy who raped me. And she was apparently very eager to get him in live for a lineup. And they did, and she immediately was like, that's the guy. He definitely was the one who raped me. Um, So, like, she really, like, once the handwriting lady was like, you know, I think it's this guy, she really, like, nailed the coffin. Yeah. So it was pretty clear that, like, he had a history of taking ladies on boats and doing shit he wasn't supposed to. Um, So they also, they find out that, like, they went to search his boat and they find out that he sold it, which super fucking suspicious. Um, so they also, I guess, apparently after the billboards went up, he, like, fled, like, he moved out of Tampa, and his daughter said that he was, like, worried. Something, I, I think he had, like, told her that he had murdered some women. I, I don't know, like, what the situation was with that. Um, so, you know, they've got, like, a positive ID from, like, uh, another situation. They've got the handwriting analysis, but they're, like, we really need, like, a smoking gun. So, they take the pamphlet, and they go ahead and spray it with some fancy chemicals. And apparently the chemicals cause, like, the amino acids to react, and it turns purple if they're... Uh, the luminol? Uh, it was, I guess, something similar to luminol. It wasn't, that wasn't, like, the I don't know. But anyway, they end up getting several fingerprints, which are attributed to, like, the mom, mostly. Um, 
but they got a palm print. Oh, God. And they go ahead and compare it to Oba Chandler, and surprise, not surprised, it is, in fact, his handprint. <laughs> well, palm print. He ends up getting, and then, and then, like, once they, like, you know, figured that out, they pulled his phone records, I guess, um, from the, the boat to shore phone, and he apparently had called his wife that night that they oh had God. been out on the boat, um, and said that he was going to be late because he was having engine trouble, and, which, like, super fucking suspicious little boat. So... They had, like, phone records showing he was out on the water. They had, like, his palm print on this brochure that he, like, randomly ma- ran into these three women in Ohio. Like, yeah. Or from Ohio and Florida. Um, and, yeah. So, he basically was charged with three counts of kidnapping and murder. And he got the death penalty. And Hal, the dairy farmer, I believe, eventually remarried, like, ten years later. I think he was quoted in an article saying that he just got lonesome. And (laughs) those cows were looking purdy. He, you know, decided that, you know, it was time for him to settle down again. Um, I think what makes this case so memorable for me is, number one, I didn't even, like, mention this, but their cause of death is completely gruesome and just outlandish he threw them overboard with the cinder blocks while they were still alive so there was water in their lungs they actually drown which is just barbaric the idea that like you know he took these women like you know yeah his mom and two daughters and like you know one by one rapes them and then throws them overboard to die it's just gruesome um, and even more gruesome, just the fact that, like, they were on their first vacation away from their farm, first time out of the state, they were on a girl's trip, because, you know, and the dad stayed behind to take care of things, but he wanted them to go on this girl's trip because, you know, they had recently found out that, like, Michelle, the 17-year-old, had been molested by her uncle who also lived on the dairy farm since she was like 14 so he had been like and the way they found out too was just like gross he had like raped his ex-girlfriend and when she went to the police about it they like searched his trailer on the farm and found you know like evidence of that but also like all these like pictures and videos or like um audio recordings of like their teenage daughter you know naked and like begging for him to stop and just you know and she he had been doing it for like three years and she was scared to say something because he said he would kill her family and it's just gross the idea that like she went to florida to escape this whole like horrible past of like her own uncle being a monster or whatever and then she runs into another monster in Florida, and ultimately, you know, they meet their end. Just that I just I remember it from that brochure and the blue white thing. Yes, and which like the detective is just like W H T. Like we didn't know what that. And I'm like, come on, man. Like, How do you not know? <laughs> yeah, like my 11 year old could tell you what it means. White. So what happened with Obi Chandler? Was he put to death or? 
Okay. He was, I believe it was like 2011, he was sentenced, uh, he was sentenced to death in, in like 1991, but he ended up um, being put to death in 2011. Um, he got the needle, or I guess we'll say the lethal injection. Um, Which works so well. If you've heard about what happened in Oklahoma. Oh, that was gross. God horrible um so he got the lethal injection um and it actually it turns out um i actually was not aware of this but in 2014 they found out that he was also guilty of another woman's um rape and murder of course yeah so it makes sense that you know if he was brave enough to take these three at three one time yeah at one time that you know he had a past um so yeah i mean there's definitely there's a lot of information out there like if you're into that kind of reading it's like <laughs> an interesting read but it's also like like I said it's really sad like I think it's just it sticks in my mind because of this whole like escaping one thing to crime yeah. to another thing um, but it's also amazing like I mean literally just a brochure pamphlet with some handwriting on it and they're like billboards solving a murder yeah so, that's my case, and yeah. <sighs> All right, so I am covering Season 5, Episode 4 of Voice from Beyond, which aired October 3rd, 2000. If you're watching it on Netflix, it's under Collection 8. <laughs> so confusing. That is very confusing. We start off September 2nd, 1999 in Jericho, New York. The Cohen family is in the middle of moving out. Ronald Cohen had found this 55-gallon steel barrel in the crawl space of his home and had moved it to the street so it could be picked up on trash day. Not weird at all. <laughs> I find barrels all the time. <laughs> Just under your house. I'm like 55-gallon barrels. Like... But this is when he's moving out. He finally puts the barrel on the curb. That's why I was wondering if maybe like new owners were like, hey, we're going to buy the house, but you got to get rid of this thing. <laughs> barrel has been here for a really long time and it's like part of the house now but like i don't really want it i, I know the house needs a new roof but we'll ignore that if you get rid of yeah, this creepy just, ass just barrel yeah and also he hauled the barrel himself it's like a 55 gallon barrel i don't like, know i'm assuming because later they show pictures of it and it's on a dolly so maybe he got a dolly i don't know i don't know how he moved this barrel Super so um yeah, the trash collectors are like, fuck that. It's too heavy. They leave a note on it for him. <laughs> like, they took the time to leave a note. This is call for special pickup. Like, we're not dealing with this. That's nicer than my garbage men. <laughs> they would have just kept driving. Yeah. <laughs> the Coens have lived in this house for nine years, and the barrel's been in the crawl space when they bought the house. For some dumb reason, after all these years, Ronald finally decides to see what's in the barrel. Who has a barrel in their crawl space for nine years and doesn't get, like, curious? I do not want to open a barrel. I would immediately just call the police. I'd be like, hey, there's, like, a weird barrel in my Because anytime space. we hear about a barrel, there's a body in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> First of all, as someone who works in a line of work that involves barrels, <laughs> I have to say that those barrels can be pretty expensive. Yeah. Like, you don't just, like, toss them around. We like to have those barrels back. Unless you're in the woods and you burn trash in it. But even then, 
there's a chance you're going to look in there and see a bone or something. Just anytime you look in a barrel, just know. There's probably a dead body. I honestly, like, anytime I look in a a barrel, I'm like, that's a dead body. (laughs) It's like when you see a black trash bag on the side of the road. That's a body. There's a body. And I love the reenactment they show of this. It takes this old man way too long to open the barrel. It's like they didn't give him any, like, we're just shooting this once. (laughs) (laughs) He's never opened a barrel in his life. Yeah, so he is struggling. They didn't give him any cues or anything like that. Did he at least have a crowbar? Was he opening it with his fingers? Was it like there a was a crowbar, but he like still a screwdriver. <laughs> like they should have like done it a couple of times to kind of loosen it up. Oh man, because he struggled to get this thing off. So Ronald gets this fucker open and is hit immediately with decomp spell smell. Surprise, surprise! And he sees a human hand just floating in it. Ugh. <laughs> I mean, I'm not surprised, but ugh. And a lady shoe, as the narrator says. Oh, no. So he calls the cops and the barrel sent to Nassau. Nassau. That's, that's what it is, right? Nassau, yeah. Yeah. Nassau County Morgue. They show a picture of the barrel and fuck that. There's no way I would buy a house that had a barrel that looked like that. What if it was like $100,000 cheaper than all the houses in the area? That's fine. I'm not opening the barrel, though. I'll just call the cops. I'll I'll pay somebody 50 bucks to open it. I don't want to open it. Honestly, in this housing market, I'd kill to find a house that had a barrel on it. <laughs> I'm just looking through listings, see if there's a barrel. Did anyone die here? See, I that I don't so. care about. I don't want to see a body. I don't no. care if somebody's died in the house. I can deal with that. Yeah, I don't want to really, see the body. I'm not bothered by that. But if it will knock a couple you know, grand off my house. Yeah. I don't care if it's a murder house. I don't want to see a body. I don't care about a murder Honestly, house. Honestly, I would tell everyone I lived in a murder house. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. House. It's a murder house. I got a great deal. So, uh, anyway, uh, the barrel's terrifying. So the police extract all the contents of the barrel and find a woman's body, obviously, some plastic pellets, a green plastic flower stem with leaves, a woman's pocketbook, and it's all been submerged in some mysterious brownish green liquid. Ew. <laughs> I guess they couldn't say like body flot, body fluid goop. That's what like, I was thinking it was. Like, uh, I'm just imagining like episodes of Bones when they're like sifting. Yeah, because like... then they also have like the Foley effect of that. Uh, <laughs> like it's never just liquid pouring out. No. So the body showed 10 different laceration injuries to the head, which that seems intense. Yeah. yeah. It's a bit much. The skull is just absolutely shattered. Sure. They figure out that it was a five foot tall Hispanic or white woman between 20 to 30 years, and they have no identification because the pocket book was destroyed by the, the goop. <laughs> and the worst part about all of it is, is she was very very pregnant with the baby boy was almost full term jesus she also had two rings and a locket found on her body so the barrel is nice because it has a number code on it which can be the police are able to trace it to a chemical chemical company in linden new jersey where the drum was manufactured in 1965 the cops start looking into the previous homeowners Ronald Cohen and the previous owner all say it was there when they moved in. 
which I mean I would also be like uh that was there when I found it and I love the pre- previous owner said he didn't open open it because there were chemical stickers on the barrel it was in your house bro. I guess Ronald just didn't give a fuck <laughs> like, <laughs> if it's not leaking maybe I, it's not your I, problem these people like it's heavy and it's not leaking there's chemical stickers I don't know what you want I want it not in my house. That's what I want. Super weird. So they go back to the pocketbook. It contains some papers and an address book, which at this point they said the paper was like pulp. Oh, yeah. I'm like actually picturing this episode and like the papery. Like... And they show the goo a lot, too. Yeah. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm visualizing this. <laughs> and yes, it's like pulp. Uh, they send it to document... Analyst Detective Big Eyes Joan Fertner. Love the which name. Made me laugh. Fartner? Oh no, Fertner. With the street name? I guess. Big Eyes? Big Eyes. She had Big Eyes. She was just shocked about everything. She puts evidence in a forensic drying cabinet. That was their words. So, <laughs> just like a drying cabinet. Right? I don't know. Like, there's not a word. Like, I'm picturing, like, you remember in, like, art class in, like, elementary school when we would, like, make the paper? Like, we would make our own paper? Oh, yeah. I was thinking of the ones we would have in our um, cooking class. Like, we would put the bread in, like, the humidifier thing, but the opposite of that. Oh, yeah. Maybe. I wonder. If, uh, we need to find out which one it is. Because I just remember, like, the <laughs> This art is teacher, just what they said. Like, it, would, it was, like, the, you know, like. Yeah, I remember the that. Grady type material. Yeah. So like you put the paper, like the and mushy put, like, paper glitter on it, in and there like, and stuff. Yes. yes. I remember that. God, that was my favorite. God, part I forgot of art. about that. We gotta find out how to make our own paper. <laughs> so once it's dried, they look at it with video spectral comparator. They'll use a big word for this, <laughs> or the a... VSC if you're short on time, which uses the infrared lights, which make it easier to see writing with the naked eye. Which made me laugh because I thought, did you ever watch Pee Wee's Playhouse? Of course. There was a joke where he was like, oh, you can look at it with the naked eye. Ah, don't look at my eye. It's naked. (laughs) A dirty, dirty man. (laughs) The show was great. It was a classic. It's amazing that they're able to pick up any information from these pages considering they've been in liquid for 30 years. Yeah, that's insane. But unfortunately, these pages are 30 years old, so any phone numbers they find are worthless. Oh yeah, they're like long <laughs> since disconnected. This was back in the olden times when the only phone number you had was your home landline, and when you moved, you got a new number. Uh, so it's hard to... The good old days. Yeah. So they know this barrel is from the 60s, so they looked at who owned the home during that time. Howard B. Elkins not only owned this home during the question time frame, but he also co-owned Melrose Plastic Company, which made plastic plants and trees. You remember the plastic flower stem they found? Sad bastard. So I'm no detective, but I think there might be a connection. In 1972, he sold the company and home and moved to Boca Raton, Florida with his wife. Hey, back in Florida. How dare he retire to Florida? In Boca. Like, just pick something new. So the barrel had contained green liquid that was used for dye and hadn't been manufactured since 1971. Probably because it was toxic. (laughs) 
So it really narrows down of when this could have been used. It's all super obvious that Harold had something to do with this. It doesn't help that the police get an anonymous tip that Harold had an affair with a Hispanic woman who worked at the factory. What a fucking stereotype. <laughs> so the cops fly down to Boca to talk to Harold, who admits he had an affair, but doesn't remember the woman's name or what she looked like. You bastard. Bro, come like, on. You definitely remember. Like, you were sleeping around on your wife. Like, you definitely remember what she looks you like. You don't know what she looks name. like. You remember every name of every person God. I've ever slept with. Maybe not last names, but first names, I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and I'm like a, I'm, I'm probably, classy. I'm probably like a good solid 80% <laughs> on last names, too. Like, again, I'm classy. <laughs> I know what they look like pick them out of a lineup i know what they look like (laughs) (laughs) so he asked the cops to leave and one of the cops tells him fine but we're gonna get a court order for your dna so we can test it against the babies why tell him this just leave seriously i don't understand why he would do this yes so of course the next day september 10th 1999 i will say they solved this rather quickly they move fast. Yeah, because uh, September 2nd when he f- opened the barrel, or I guess the next day, the third, he opened the barrel. So, I mean, it's a they're, week. They're, yeah, they're moving quick. But to be fair, those barrels, like, really are, like, very traceable. Like, you're just... I will also say the quality of the barrel was good, that all the stuff stayed in there for over 30 years and... Dude, those things are it made did to not last. leak. That is why they are not so cheap. <laughs> so, right, September 10th, 1999, seven year old Harold is found dead in the backseat of a neighbor's car. What the hell? From man? a self inflicted gunshot wound. Dude, if my neighbor shot themselves in my car, <laughs> I would be so livid. That so, is messed up, bro. Did he not have his own car to commit suicide in? It was a shotgun he had purchased at Walmart that day. No surprise. (laughs) Like, why the fuck do you have to kill yourself in someone else's car and fuck up their day? Like, I don't... Could you imagine, like, bye, honey, I'm gonna go to work now, I'll see you later, da-da-da, oh my god, like, what the hell? I don't Who does that? I don't think there's ever been a situation where someone's like, how did he get in the car? Well, not everybody locks their cars, I guess. Yeah. I'm just a fish. <laughs> I don't trust anyone. So, of course, now the cops can test his DNA all they want. And not surprisingly, Surprise! he's a match as the father of the baby. And you can tell this show is old because they splen- spend plenty of time explaining DNA and how it works. Which, like, everyone knows now. <laughs> yeah. So, crime is solved. Except we still don't know who the woman is. They're still trying to work on the address book, and they do find Harold's information in it, which at this point you don't really need. They also found a permanent residence card or a green card that belonged to 27-year-old Reina and Jelica Marroquin. They also find a phone number for Kathy Andrade, who was still living in the same apartment after 30 years. That's incredible. And confirms it's her friend Reina. Kathy tells the cops that she knew Raina was pregnant and that the father of the baby was already married with three kids and had no plans of ditching his wife to be with her. 
Reyna was angry about this and called the guy's wife to tell her about the affair and pregnancy. Which, not cool. Oh my god, the wife knew! The wife knew. And once the guy found out about the phone call, he threatened to kill Reyna. The next time Kathy went over to her friend's apartment, it was unlocked and empty. Kathy reported the disappearance to the cops, but of course, they didn't do anything. Oh, maybe she's out shopping, is what they said to her. For because six years. women be shopping. We do be shopping now. Kathy never knew who the married man was, so there wasn't anything she could do. All she could do is say she's not here. <laughs> that is insane. So, at this point, the police theory is that Harold lured Raina to the factory after she told his wife about the, f- the affair and beat her to death. Because it couldn't have been her apartment. You would think they would have found something. And he's definitely not going to do it at his own house. So factory yeah. would be. Honestly, I wouldn't put it past him to do it in his own house. Well, and then he took the body to his house, put her in the barrel, had planned to dump the barrel in the ocean because he had a boat. I remember this, but it was Best too part. heavy. So he filled the barrel with plastic beads to weigh it down. Unfortunately for this fucking idiot the barrel was way too heavy at <laughs> 350 remember. pounds i remember that part <laughs> so he just shoved it in the crawl space in the basement and just hoped no one would ever find it which is funny because all the other homeowners knew about the barrel he just got lucky it took so long for one of them to open it i am amazed that not only did he keep a dead body in a barrel in his own home but like he sold his house with the barrel still in yes, it. Yes, the house went through several owners. Like, typically when you commit a murder and you have the main part of the evidence in your house, you don't sell your house, like, ever. Like, he should have died in that home no. and had the... Gotta the, go to Boca, baby! Come on! I just, I'm appalled with that. Like, he couldn't spend five extra minutes... To, like, get a dolly and wheel that shit out. It went through several owners before somebody opened it. You know, people are really lazy. Because he's, like, at 70 at this point, thinking, oh, man, I'm getting away with it. And he did. goddamn Ronald. (laughs) Fucking bastard. So, now we get to an absolute saint. Oscar Corral is covering the story for Newsday and decides to fly down to San Martin in El Salvador to find Reyna's family. He finds her 95-year-old mother, who had no idea what happened to her daughter for 30 years. Could you imagine, like, as a mother, just, I mean, that's like a... And this sweet man, not a cop, he's just writing a story about her daughter, decides to fly down there to let the family know. Yeah, because I imagine the cop didn't do shit. This poor woman had been having dreams about her daughter, including dreams where her daughter was in a barrel. That's fucking creepy. The saddest part is Reyna had left El Salvador for the United States because she found out her husband had an affair and gotten that woman pregnant, which makes it even more strange that she would have an affair with a married man. I mean, did she maybe not know initially that he was married? I just, I just, I can't imagine, like, I mean, I don't know, maybe, like, because he was in a position of like more power maybe like it was it's just something she felt she had obligated i don't know like it just seems weird so reyna was buried in el salvador and a month later her mother passed away and was buried with her 
It was like this poor woman was holding on to find out what happened to her daughter. So as if the story couldn't get any more sad, in the pocketbook, they eventually deciphered a page that said, don't be mad, I told the truth. Like it was a note she had written to Harold. And that's the end of my episode. Man, I thought mine was depressing because it was like... This one, there's no justice. <laughs> there is no justice. And it's a dead baby. Mm-hmm. Good lord. <laughs> but also, people, don't put don't put dead bodies in barrels, okay? Those things are heavy. The barrel was 350 pounds. <laughs> I can't believe that at no point he was like, I'm going to get a dolly and wheel this thing out and dispose of it. But instead, I'm going to leave this very traceable barrel mm-hmm. with my company's information and you know just leave it in my home but also i'm gonna sell my home it was just do you know how many people live in their home until they fucking die <laughs> and the dead body is found like you gotta be committed if you're gonna your parents are just now moving my parents are still in the same house my parents have lived in the same house for 34 years so i'm saying my parents are still in the house we grew up when and since now I was that they're three. moving i know that there's no dead bodies <laughs> also we don't have a crawl space so the only dead things are my pets in the backyard. Which they is. say crawl space. I think it was like in the basement, just like some weird corner in the basement. Yeah, because I can't, I can't picture like a crawl space having enough room. Because when I was in Illinois, there was a basement. And I wouldn't say it was a crawl space, but it was like, we just don't go over in that corner. <laughs> There's a corner that's just kind of... God, I've always wanted a basement. It was fun till the winter and you had to worry about your clothes freezing in the washer. That's true. Or basement flooding. That was like probably the only downside. Um, Plus I'm not go with stairs. (laughs) I mean, I do remember, I do remember like a case of like someone, I think it was like a woman that was missing for a long time and they eventually found her in like, I, I guess it was like the space between the walls or something. Like, I guess she had like just makes me think of Bob's burger when he got stuck between the walls because he didn't want to deal with his in-laws so he just <laughs> stayed in there uh, Bob's burgers <laughs> but this was fun it was I forgot how many amazing episodes of Forensic Files yeah, there were there's 400 we could yeah. easily do this plenty of times I feel like I'm not that great at narrating it was a lot of fun. It's just practice. I'll get better. <sighs> so that's going to be it for this week. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to Doc to Me. The opening music is by Twisterium. For comments or suggestions, we can be reached by email at doctomepod at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at doctomepod and find a link to our Facebook group in the show notes. Thank you.